Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to David Ardidi about getting signed, record contracts, musicians, and power in society. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dave. Um, Congratulations on writing this uh, incredibly interesting book, which is kind of like part critical theory book, part ethnography, um, part almost kind of like policy intervention. Uh, It's absolutely uh, fascinating. And I was delighted when when you said you'd be up um, for for the interview, partially because it's um, a good book, but also I think it's um, a book that speaks, you know, really kind of immediately to where cultural production is, um, particularly some of the later uh, parts of the book that, that think about um, the kind of the process of, um, as the book is called, getting signed. And the place to start with it, I guess, is is what is the book kind of talking about, which sounds like a daft question, but one of the things that struck me is that record contracts are sort of unique and weird in their own sort of way. And it'd be great to know a bit about sort of what a record contract is. And I guess the kind of the problems of record contracts that um, got you to write the book. Yeah, well, record contracts, and I think that this speaks to a broader way that the gig economy today operates. So mm. uh, if, if you will, music is the original gig economy workers in kind of contemporary capitalism. Um, so the record contract is something that musicians sign with record labels, usually major record labels, and it stipulates a series of uh, things that responsibilities that both the musician and the label are going to take as part of the contract. And the basic idea is once a musician signs it, they're agreeing to solely produce music for that record label. And in exchange, what they get is an advance. Now, it's not just as simple as they're exchanging to exclusively do this thing with the record label for an advance, but they're also signing away the majority of their copyrights to that record contract or the record label. And what an advance is, is the pot of money that the label or that the artist receives and that they can then produce an album with. Um, so generally, you know, if, if this were back in the 1990s, this is the easiest way to think about it. Uh, and uh, I'm going to talk in American U.S. dollars. Uh, but if uh, a record label was to sign a new artist, they might sign them for $500,000. The artist needs to pay back that $500,000 on their royalties from the sale of that album. Their royalties, generally speaking, is 10 to 15% of uh, every sale. So if it's $500,000, if a CD in that era cost $15 or $16, Five or six dollars would come off the top to the retailer. So that leaves ten dollars on what royalties are based on. If it's ten percent royalties that they're earning, 
they're earning a dollar off the sale of every uh, CD sold. So when they sell a CD, they receive a dollar. That dollar needs to go back to the record label to pay for the advance. So what they need to sell in order to ever make any money off of the sale of an album is they need to sell 500,000 albums. Uh, that's $500,000. So they don't, after they sell 500,001 albums, they finally earn a dollar. Now, the trick of this is, is that in the United States, the Recording Industry Association of America considers a gold album when an artist has sold 500,000 copies of an album. So they have to go gold to even break even. The really obvious question is, why do they do it? And that is is very much, you know, the, the kind of what the book is about. Um, I, I mean, you know, it's a sort of terrifying uh, hurdle, isn't it? You know, to, to be presented with um, if, if you want to be you know, successful in, in financial terms from your creative labor, you, you need to be essentially, you know, kind of breaking some significant records. And, and one of the things the book does is introduce this idea of a, of a kind of like ideology of getting signed um, as a way of, I suppose, accounting for um, some of the reasons why um, musicians and, and actually, yeah, you, you know, as kind of gig economy laborers are still getting involved in um, these contractual relations. So what is this kind of um, ideology of, of getting signed and, and how does it help us kind of understand why uh, musicians get involved with these kind of contracts? Well, when I first started research on the book, what I wanted to understand was that it, it, first question he asked, why do people want to sign a record contract if it's so inequitable? Um, and I ended up with the idea, researching the ideology of getting signed because I, I was more interested in not only why they do it, but what kind of the, where the motivation comes from. And where it exists in society. So I, I coined this phrase, ideology of getting signed, to speak to Marx uh, and his conceptions of ideology. And to think in terms of how uh, ideology ends up moting, motivating people to do the thing that enables capitalism to keep chugging along. So in terms of the ideology of getting signed... Um, it's this dream that exists throughout society, uh, not just with musicians, but with their friends and family, that signing a record contract means that somebody made it. They didn't, they're not just playing music and getting together with some friends and going and, and playing at a, a bar and calling themselves a, a musician, which um, are kind of folk devils of society in their own way. Um, but they've really made it at the point when they've signed a record contract. And so that ideology kind of is the grease that keeps the wheels turning. Within that, you sort of gesture towards this, the, the way that, you know, it, it takes a lot of uh, material relations for ideology to, uh, to to function, really. And 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 the book, actually, I should say, the book is is filled with with quite a lot of ethnographic material. You know, you as um, a, a, as participant, you talking to musicians, 
um, you um, in, in some ways trying to make it big um, in, in your own kind of way. Um, but actually, at the same time, the book has got uh, quite a lot of theoretical in- interventions and, and, you know, you've flagged a couple of them quite usefully there. And one way is probably to, to go back to something you'd said around record contracts is to think about um, copyright and you know, immediately sort of copyright sounds, well, you know, this is kind of boring, it's sort of legal, but actually it's one of the kind of key ways that the ideology of getting signed functions, um, particularly in, in terms of both, um, I guess, kind of closing off ownership of um, the labour of musicians, but also as being part of the way that musicians end up kind of alienated from um, from their own work. So I wonder if you could kind of explain copyright's role in the uh, the ideology of getting signed yeah i think that copyright is kind of the original sin if you will of the music industry so copyright going back to uh, i believe the statute of Anne in england um was always about protecting publishers or at least initially protecting printers they're going to print books so in the act of printing a book, they want to make sure that somebody else doesn't come along and start printing the same book and selling the copies. So they they negotiated and came up with this idea of copyright. And copyright was never there to protect the author in the way that we think about it today as protecting the author. And again, this is an ideological standpoint that somehow um, the author is being protected. But what copyright does is it ends up creating this package of rights. Uh, We call it property rights. And in a way, as I outline in the book, it's a useful way to think about um, how copyright operates in capitalism. But it's not a property right. If somebody can't steal your copyright the way somebody could steal a phone or something, Um, they the, the, the copyright is always there and it, it it's this package. Um, but within music, and I, I try to think about it in terms of um, how it motivates people to work for capital. And I, I draw back in uh, the chapter three of the book to land enclosure and the land enclosure acts in in Britain and early capitalism, um, 15th, 16th centuries, um, where peasants working on the land, um, for feudal lords, right. That you, you worked on the land and, um, you, you paid, you gave a percentage of the stuff that you grew to the Lord, um, and you kept the, the rest for yourself, but it was always that percentage that you had to give. And, and they didn't own the land. They were, they were tenants, right? Um, so when capitalism, the process that Marx describes is when capitalism started getting churning, um, the land enclosure and the creation of private property made it so uh, these serfs, either could continue to work on the land as wage labor or they had to get off the land and, and go somewhere. Um, and they were sent into cities. Um, I can't remember what King it was, but killed. And 
an amazing, maybe you remember better than I do. Uh, I think it was like 50,000 um, vagabonds in one year, uh, which is an incredible amount of the English population of the time. Um, and this created capitalism because these people had to go find a job and had to work as wage labor. Um, and copyright does something very similar. Now, granted, vagabonds aren't being um, loaded up and killed. Uh, but the way I, I tried to think through this was um, musicians own the means of production. They, it's not very expensive um, to, to get an instrument. Um, not, you know, they make pretty cheap guitars and drum sets today, but even kind of more expensive um, means more in expensive instruments are not always a barrier to being able to play music. You can borrow someone's instrument, you can find a used one, um, you can have one handed down to you. People have instruments. Uh, so there's no real way for capital to get involved in the process as long as musicians own instruments. Uh, so they created this copyright as a way to um, enclose particular property rights and uh, get, for capital to get involved in the process. And in doing so, they, uh, and, and this all happens with the phonograph uh, and early recording equipment, and to say, well, if you want to put this thing out there, you need our support, uh, so you have to give those rights up to the the, the record label, and so that that's where I, I see copyright come in. I mean, there's loads of big ideas in the book. I was, I was going to say like the other big idea, um, but there are actually loads of big ideas in the book. But one of the other big ideas in the book is, is I, I guess, a kind of um, social critique of the U.S. as a society. Um, which, um, I mean, it picks up on both, you know, kind of enclosure and, and, and copyright and, and ideas about things like alienation as well. But you chart a system where the ideology of getting signed basically means that musicians are always kind of competing against each other. And actually, like later on in the book, you give quite a detailed um, breakdown of how even things like, you know, kind of Battle of the Bands, um, are, you know, really sort of negative in, in, in terms of fostering this um, sense of competition. But this isn't just a kind of a music industry thing. And, and again, this is one of those elements where the book is speaking way beyond just the music industry. I guess you're offering a critique um, of contemporary uh, or maybe actually historical US society. And this idea of competition is, is the crucial thing. So, so what's going on there? What's the kind of... Um, the nature of and the problem with competition. American capitalism is shot through with the idea of kill or be killed in business. And in music, you see this from the very start. So um, I recall being, you know, as early as fifth grade when I started playing music um you do these things called chair tests. And while in the United States we have laws about uh, posting students' grades, for instance, 
Um, I mean, technically you could post a grade, but you have to assign somebody a num- an anonymous number so that other people can't see. So you, you could have competition in that way. But, you know, uh, as soon as you start playing music, everything comes down to um, are you first chair, second chair, third chair, fourth chair on your instrument in school band? And everybody knows who's first chair, second chair, third chair, etc. Right. Uh, so it, it creates this sense of competition, no different than, say, sporting events. And I think that, you know, the concept of playing in music is should all really be about teamwork. But instead of being about creating the best music possible with the people around you, it becomes, well, how do I get ahead of this person? And that remains the case throughout music. Um when it comes to an instrument. So you have auditions. Auditions are uh, very public in a way that um, uh, an interview is not. If you go for an interview, there you might never see the other people that are interviewing, but in music and arts generally, in the performing arts, you might be sitting in the room watching other people audition. Uh, you might be sitting in the waiting room, um, having to talk to the other people that are auditioning and being able to hear them um, from the next room. So that idea, that tension is always there. It remains even if you're in a band. Um, You might very well be competing with the people in your band to get a better gig. Uh, And to to continue that kind of trajectory, back to uh, school bands, you go and you go to competitions like a sporting event uh, in the United States. And, and I, I talk about some of the long history of this going back in the first competitions that, that arise. But um, when I was in high school or in middle school, we'd go on band trips and compete in these things. That, uh, they were for-profit competitions that you would go and to a city and, and, and go to amusement parks as part of it. it was this whole package deal of travel. Uh, but then there were also kind of the regional band comp district band competitions. So which band was the best or you had marching bands. Um, my middle school band director uh, just contacted me last night. Um, he's uh, he was the drummer for the Isley brothers. Uh, his name's Everett Collins. Um, but he would take us, I grew up in Virginia and we would go up to New York where he grew up, uh, and, and, and fire departments have these really crazy competitions in New York over the summer into the fall where they, they have these marching competitions. And, uh, we played in North Amityville. You may have heard of the Amity, you've seen the movie Amityville Horror. Um, that's where he was from. So we'd go up there and had a drum corps called Drummers with Attitudes, uh, <laughs> playing on NWA, DW. and so we played, and it was like we were completely different because we played funk. But you were competition; it was a competition against other marching bands. And uh, but he he contacted us because he wants to go. Uh, he lives in Atlanta now, and he wants to 
to have like a big get together in March in the Martin Luther King Jr. Day parade next year. So that's kind of on the top of my mind. But this competition goes on. It, it ends up in um, Battle of the Bands, but it, it really highlights itself in record contracts. And that's the thing that people compete for. And it's really you're competing for uh, the opportunity to be exploited by capital. Should we talk about some music? Like everything we've been talking about, I think is, you know, kind of crucial in um, understanding how both the contract and um, music industry and, you know, as you mentioned, US society functions. But but obviously, you know, the book, I keep coming back to this, has got um, all of this really rich detail about um, actual, you know, musicians and their working lives. And maybe we'll do two. Um, Talked about competition, you know, possibly uh, kind of being in competition with your own bandmates, certainly with, with with other artists. But actually, there's a kind of a like a weirdness about the kind of solidarity of of being in a band. Um, and um, this this band Solace was one of your um, your case studies. Um, who I guess American listeners would would be familiar with them if they're into you know kind of heavy music. Um, I, not sure whether kind of outside of my, you know, sort of hipster, um, sort of heavy alternative music uh, communities, other, other listeners would, would know them. But um, I think they're quite a nice case study in that. Um, well, so, to, to, sorry to interrupt. Solace is actually a pseudonym. So there's no band named Solace. Oh, I thought they were um, the spinoff from Godspeed. Um, I'm <laughs> Slightly disappointed. I was like, "Wow, you met like Godspeed." <laughs> no, they were. Uh, I hope. I hope I didn't use somebody's uh, an actual band name. The band name is similar to the word Solace, um, and they are a, uh, or they were a kind of folk band. That's really interesting. I um, yeah, I, I, I thought they were much more uh, kind of both famous and and real. Um, <laughs> what was going on with them? What what was the kind of um, the sort of tensions of being in a band, working in a band? So I met with them. They were playing a, a gig. It was at an amphitheater, and it was a pretty good sized gig. And they were from one city, and they moved to, to Nashville, Tennessee, to try to make it. And I, they were in this town that I was in and, and I, I'm hanging out backstage with these guys and they're kind of telling me about their trials and tribulations of moving from, um, one small college music town to Nashville and what that meant for them. And in that move, um, that a couple people in the band did not make the move with them. So they got some other people from small college music town to move to Nashville with them. Um, and oh, kind of over time, I think they'd ended up with somebody who was not from small college music town, but um, they met them in Nashville to replace someone but they, they were clearly there were machinations going on to try to 
really establish themselves as a, a, a good band. Um, and there were, I think, three people at that point who were still part of that original core. It was a five-piece band. Um, so they were clearly trying to get somewhere. But the, the one person who had become part of their band since being in Nashville, um, his part of the story was always a little bit different from what they were saying. So they were really trying to make it as a band. And it was also clear that he was trying to make it as a musician. And this band was an opportunity for him. Um, so there, there were very interesting dynamics going on with them. Um, I go to, to write the book and notice maybe... I don't know if this was six, nine months after I had spoken with them, they were no longer playing. And then a couple months later, you know, I'm still working on the book and I see that they're together for a kind of reunion gig somewhere uh, as I'm looking on the, the Internet. So they kind of follow this trajectory of um, a band trying to make it and then not making it. And in our conversation, I was like, well, you know, would you ever want to get signed to a, a record label? And they t- kind of tell me this long story about how they had just been in negotiations with uh, a record label. It, it seemed like a smaller independent label um, in Nashville. And they kind of laughed the contract out of the door because they didn't like what the the label was trying to sell them, which is also another interesting tension um, among bands is that when musicians are young and they're kind of naive getting started and they don't know how what these contracts look like, they're very eager or eager to sign whatever comes their way. But as musicians play more and they know more about how the industry operates, they're not as eager to sign whatever comes their way. They are aware of how exploitative the terms are. So they're, they're willing to give up the dream of signing a contract if the contract's not what they want. And that was the case with solace. At like the, is it the opposite end of the the music industry? Like, or the, the kind of like, I suppose the the end of the music industry that everybody in, say, yeah, the folk world or the rock world is really kind of, you know, dismissive of and, and you know, thinks is, is is the kind of, you know, the problem maybe is is the um, the kind of TV talent show version of the record industry. Um, and actually thinking, thinking about methods was that interesting because um, you talk a bit in the book about how, you know, doing field work around this TV show, The Voice, um, which it is basically like, I mean, that's been sold all over the world and there's, you know, kind of loads of countries that have got their own version of um, of The Voice now. How, you know, doing field work was, was tricky and, you know, kind of naming people and, and even, you know, kind of getting getting access was, was you know, sort of um, slightly delicate, at least compared to sort of, you know, hanging out in various music scenes. But, one of the things you do in the book is like, you don't just kind of do the usual, you know, TV talent shows are awful. I mean, they are, you know, bad, but, but like, you know, it's not just the kind of a classic uh, sort of 
um, critique. What, one of the things you try and do is say, well, actually, we should read TV talent shows through record contracts. And, you know, obviously it's, you, you know, the kind of the ultimate version of, of getting signed, but also it tells us something quite unusual about how record contracts work. Yeah, and the voice wasn't something that I thought that I would be talking much about when I started the book. Um, I had I have friends that have auditioned for different uh, talent shows, not the voice, because when I was active as a musician, it was before the voice was around. Uh, but I do have two friends that auditioned for American Idol. Um, and so I, I had kind of an understanding of how this operates. You know, Idol as a brand. These are all brands and yeah. they operate in different countries. Um, Idol, of course, starting first in uh, Britain. Um, but The Voice, it, it just kept coming up. I mean, I, I was hanging out at a bar and... Um, I was there trying to talk to different musicians. There was a, it was a kind of music meetup and I'm hanging out and the person I was talking to was like, Oh, you need to talk to, to this guy over here. Let me introduce you. He was on the voice. Um, and so I start talking to him and his manager and they tell me all this stuff about contracts and about how messed up the, the voices and um, I'm like, wow, that's really fascinating. So then I wanted to do, I wanted to interview people at the auditions and it came to my hometown. So um, Arlington, Texas is the place kind of in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex, which is uh, the third largest Metroplex in the United States. Um, Arlington's where all the, the stadiums are. So we have, AT&T Stadium, which is where the Dallas Cowboys play. And we have uh, Globe Life Park and Global, now Globe Life Field, and a new version, which is where the Texas Rangers, the, ba- the baseball team plays. Um, and the auditions were ha- for The Voice were happening at the Rangers ballpark. So I was like, oh, cool. I want to go check this out, see if I can't just get in there and see how it happens, right? And I had no real intention. Um. But I kept trying to contact the voice and they wouldn't allow me. They would Number one, I had a hard time getting anybody to respond to me. Uh, and this is always and I'm sure you've run into this problem as well. When you study the creative industries, the, the large creative industry corporations don't really want to talk to you. So uh, I've, you know, record labels never want to speak with me. I try contacting the voice in every way that I can think possible. I'm getting nowhere, getting nowhere. Finally, I contact like the marketing department or the PR department that sets things up with journalists. And they, a couple days before the audition, contact me back and say, oh, hey, um, no, we're not going to give you press credentials. (laughs) And I wasn't asking for press credentials. I'm not press. That would be weird. Um, So... But they said, no, it's not going to happen. So I I figured, oh, whatever, I'll just go down to the ballpark and talk to people. I mean, there's there's thousands of people that are going to show up. There's going to be people hanging out. So I show up and I interviewed uh, family members that are hanging out in the park across the street. And um, it, it, it really kind of told me a lot about 
the hopes and dreams that people had uh, trying to audition on this show. But it also, throughout the whole ethnography, I started finding bits of information about the voice um, and their kind of uh, draconian um, laws that or uh, contracts that they had people sign and non-disclosure agreements. And those non-disclosure agreements um, make it so everything becomes hidden um, on the show. So people want to go on the show now to try to skip the the bar circuit, if you will. And SoundCloud works the same kind of way. People don't necessarily need to go play at bars and demonstrate um, um, an up-and-coming musician. Now they can go on The Voice or they can... Uh, produce music and put it on SoundCloud and try to demonstrate that they have a following. The problem with the voice is they perpetuate this dream that you're going to get on there. The prize in the U S on the voice is a hundred thousand dollars and a record contract, but nobody that I'm aware of up to this point has really even made it in music getting a, a record contract through the voice. What tends to happen is people go on the show. It's got entertainment value and the, the coaches on the show really benefit from the added publicity, but the, the singers that have their hopes and dreams about for going on the show really are just crushed and end up with nothing after the fact. And um, it's highly exploitative uh, as I discuss in the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I was brought to mind, you know, um, it made Simon Cowell like a, you know, internationally famous uh, global superstar. But, you know, then, you know, it's tricky to kind of think of the um, the key musicians who've come from that system and, and have had, you know, really sort of long-term, you know, 10, 15-year careers. And it's funny you mentioned SoundCloud as, you, you know, another route. I mean, the book tries to engage with uh, questions of, of the impact um, of digital a bit as well. And, you, you know, th- there's loads and loads of stuff going on in the book that I know you've been getting into with um, a, a related book and a, a related uh, kind of research project. But I want to make sure we, we conclude with one of the most kind of interesting moments in the book, which was basically a, a kind of like, so what should we do about this? And I was really, really taken by... Um, it, it might be like even the very sort of last page or, you know, certainly the last couple of pages of the book where you talk about this idea about why do we think about musicians as being, having, you know, salaried employee status. And obviously the U.S. has got unique uh, kind of issues around things like access to healthcare through employers and, and that, you know, dynamic is is important over there. But I was really intrigued by the way that um, almost like the opposite of the ideological construction of what it is to be a musician, what it is to be in a band, what it is to be a gig worker would be a solution to some of these problems, you you know, almost the kind of like, uh, let's make musicians the man and give them, you know, salaried employee status. So I was sort of intrigued by that and it really appealed to me. I'd love to know how you kind of think through that as a solution to the ideology of getting signed. Well, I'd hardly say that um, they'd be the man for um, for working for a salary. 
but they would certainly be working for the man. And they're already working for the man. And that's, I think, the, the crux of it. And and there's there's some problems uh, in, in the entertainment industries more generally. Uh, the in Hollywood studios, they fought against having to be kind of this person that's forced to work for the studio. Uh, so there, there, there are kind of multiple lineages here, but as I argue throughout the book, these people are workers. They're just not considered workers. And by not being considered workers, they don't get protected by labor laws. They don't get a salary they don't get a wage. They don't get uh, labor protections for in the U.S. forty-hour work weeks. Like these are not things that are attainable to musicians. But pretty much everybody else at the record label works for the record label. So if you ever go to one of these labels, you walk in. They're big, shiny foyers that you walk into, uh, and there's a receptionist sitting at a desk. That receptionist is a salaried worker. You might see a janitor come by and mopping the shiny floors, right? That janitor works for the record label. Everyone on up works for the record label. And as I argue, um, musicians are the workers that create value for record companies. Um and they're the only people at record companies that don't get paid a wage. Uh, so there, there's this, this tension there. And I think that a lot of it would be resolved if people were employed as salary workers. Uh, you sign a, a, a labor contract the same way you would sign any other labor contract. You would not be an independent contractor and your job would be to work for the company and do a good job for them. And as long as you do a good job, you, your contract continues in the same way as any other labor contract. Um, and maybe your, your music's not selling, so maybe you work into a different part of the company the way you would you'd get a promotion or something. Um, so you're no longer the frontline worker. You're... Uh, working in A and R or something, but which is artists and repertoire where they they sign people. So that's my big dream of how this could operate. Uh, though I also am not naive, and I know that it's not going to work that way. And um, there's a lot of other ways that it could operate as well. Is that stuff you're going to be thinking about in future projects? I know um, you've got another book out on. Uh, streaming culture and, and the kind of you know um, impact of um, things like streaming platforms, but also you know kind of digital more more generally on on culture. Um, so, are you going to be doing more kind of digital stuff? Are you going to be thinking about um, what would we call it like business models for creative industries? Are you going to do more of the kind of general social critical stuff? You know, we, we've mentioned the uh, the gig economy quite quite a few times what sort of comes next for your work so i think uh, I'm, I'm working on some articles and chapters right now but my next real big project is i'm beginning an ethnography of drummers and i want to think in terms of the concept of rhythm and how rhythm 
uh, works in society more generally. So um, Henri Lefebvre came up with rhythm analysis, and I want to try to think in terms of how rhythm operates in society, but thinking as a drummer and thinking how drummers think in those terms. So my next gambit's to go deeply theoretical on rhythm.